Tonight's teaching comes from Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3. And again, we're, we're studying tonight under this theme of grateful generosity. And it reads as follows. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is God's word. Again, the lesson is from Hebrews which, if you don't know, it's, it's a really unique book of the New Testament, and it's unique for a variety of different reasons. It's unique in, in part because we don't exactly know who the author is. We have some good educated guesses as to whom the author might actually be, but we don't know for sure. And yet we know that it was accepted and canonized by the early Christian church, so we know it was uh, valid, inspired literature. Uh, we also know exactly what the context of it seems to be, because the Hebrews are, these are Jews who converted to the Christian faith, and as a result of that conversion, they are facing all sorts of persecution in life. I'd say both like objective persecution, like violence, and subjective persecution, like emotional uh, damage. So like Christianity is still an illegal religion in the Roman Empire, so it's dangerous objectively. But also, those of you who know, you know anything about like Judaism, it's, it's not just a system of doctrine. It's like a culture and a community of people. And if you convert away from Judaism, if you convert out of the community, essentially you become socially ostracized. So think all of your family members who remain Jews when you converted to Christianity seemingly want nothing to do with you and your dirty religion at this point moving forward. So these are people who are experiencing a good deal of what you might call persecution. And they're wondering, after being beaten down both by the outside world and from the inside community and being like worn down through all of this, is this Christianity thing actually worth it? Because I'm supposedly I'm believing the right things and I'm doing the right things and I still feel miserable a lot of the time. Wait a second. Why is it working like this? Is it actually worth it? The writer of the Hebrews says unequivocally, yes, it's worth it. And it's worth it not just because of what comes at the end, what's on the other side of the finish line, the life that is to come. It's worth it certainly for that. But it's also worth it because Christianity offers to you like otherworldly resources for dealing with the inevitable trials that we experience in the wilderness of life. He says, you don't really have to look much further than the people who are just in the chapter right before this. So Hebrews 11, if you don't know, is a very unique chapter of the Bible. It's sometimes referred to as the, the heroes of faith chapter. And it lists individuals like Abraham and uh, Moses and David and Noah and guys like that. And how they were able to overcome some incredible odds by holding on to God's promises. And the reason they are heroes, they're not just it's not the chapter of heroes. It's the heroes by faith. That's important. In other words, those individuals are known and revered in history not because they in themselves were so great, not because they accomplished something great on their own, certainly not because their lives were particularly easy or cushy, 
but because they held on. In the midst of the storms, in the midst of the storms of life, they held on to God's promises so that when the wind finally stopped blowing, they were still standing. And then in Hebrews 12, you get to like the culmination of that entire thought process and you see what they were looking at. You see where they found their power. You see what they had their eyes fixated on this entire time. What was moving them forward in all of this. And that's where we're picking it up here tonight. We're going to break down the text according to like concept. One concept at a time. When we go through a narrative, we often go like one plot point at a time. Uh, in an epistle like this, we're going to go through like a concept at a time. We've got a couple of them that we'll break down and then we'll make some bigger applications. First of all, this, this cloud of witnesses thing that we see here in verse 1. Immediately we run into a translation issue here and it's like you get this again and again in this text and what that tells you, we've, we've mentioned this before, when you look at English translations and you get a lot of different words describing things in from translation to translation, what that tells you is whatever is in the original language is such a deep concept that it's really difficult to bring over in like just one word from Greek to English. And therefore, what we have here, it says cloud of witnesses. I don't like, because what's a cloud of witnesses? I don't know what that is. So, like, another good translation would be a crowd. So, like, a cloud envelops, but a crowd can gather around. And the word that's used here for witnesses is the Greek word martyrion, which is where we get our English word martyr. And a martyr has been come to known in the English language as a concept of somebody who dies for witnessing to their faith. That's not what it originally meant. It originally just meant a witness. But because the rest of the world was so hostile to the Christian faith and so many believers died because of their testimony of a resurrected Christ or died because of their testimony uh, to the, the, the faith in Jesus, because so many died, it came to mean somebody who dies specifically for their faith. Now, what the writer of the Hebrews is saying here is, you know what, if you look at Hebrews 11, what you get is a lot of people who sweated a lot for their faith. When they got to know God better, their life did not get less complicated, it got more complicated. It didn't get circumstantially easier. Many times it got circumstantially and relationally more difficult the closer that they got to God. And yet, those were the ones, those were the people of substance that the Jews really revered Furthermore, what those crowd of witnesses, what those people who had come before, those heroes of faith, what they did is they proved it could be done. So that when you have a bunch of people who are going through these tremendous hardships and they're saying like, man, is this worth it? Can this even happen? Can this even? Well, let's look back a couple thousand years, the people that were studying, the people that you revere. Is it worth it? Yes, they got through it. And they're like, they're almost like people who were on the same race, but they finished. And like they came back and they're alongside and they're encouraging you and they're shouting out to you and they're saying, you can do this. Just keep going. I've done it. You can do this. I know you can do this. So we're encouraged by these crowd of martyrs or crowd of witnesses. The second thing he says in that first verse is throw off the hindrances that would otherwise hold you back. Now, very, this is super common in Greco-Roman writing to compare a, an athletic event to the moral struggles of life. And the word that's used here for race, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for you. Uh, it can be translated as just like fight too, but you know what the, the, the Greek word is? It's agona. And you know what English word we get directly from that? Agona? We get the word agony. So what is the writer to the Hebrews saying here? Let us run with perseverance the race. Let us fight the good fight. You could legitimately translate this section. Let us progress in agony, in the agony that is laid out before us. That is not exactly the American ideal. 
or the general American default and impulse and where we look to go. The general American default is I want to try to procure as much happiness, as much comfort, and much good feelings and pleasure in this life as I could possibly squeeze out of it. Or let us progress in the agony that is laid out for us. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in the application section, so I'll come back to it. But to, this is to such an extent that the author says, I want you to actually remove any of the things in your life that could possibly hinder you or prevent you from running this race. Take it off, throw it off. It's, so if any of you were in high school or college and you ran track or cross country or something like that, one of the more noteworthy things about the gear of like uh, track is the shorts. Like I don't, track shorts, I think we're mostly familiar with this concept, are preposterously short. Like shorts by definition are supposed to be short, but track shorts are like, if people wore those in their day-to-day -day lifestyle, they would get thrown behind bars for indecent exposure kind of level of thing. Why would you ever think to wear shorts so short? And yet, if you were ever like a sprinter or a runner, you know why. Have you ever tried sprinting with sweatpants on? Like the wind resistance and uh, the weight and you can like trip on them and it holds you back. And what the writer of the Hebrews is saying here is like, so it's, I apologize for putting the short, shorty, short image in your head, but what he's trying to say is anything in life, whether it is good or bad, whether you deem it good or bad, whether you, you know, it could be, it could be bad behavior, like addictive sin, but it also could be something that you would deem good that takes up a lot of your time. It takes up a lot of your energy and it's a huge relationship in your life. But if it is preventing you from progressing in your relationship with Jesus Christ and running the race that's before you, you should get rid of it. So we call those idols, by the way. It doesn't matter how good you deem it to be. It doesn't matter how not, you know, uh, you know, how, how evil you would uh, quantify it to be. If it stands in the way of relationship with Christ, it is therefore sinful. And therefore, we have to throw off anything. If this life really is about running this race faithfully, then anything that stands in the way, good or bad, that's deterring from the race or from the fight needs to go away. We get into verse 2, and he says, here's the motivation to run a race, because running a race for your entire life sounds kind of exhausting. He says, where do you find the motivation to do that? Well, you'll find the power, you'll find the motivation when you fix your eyes on Jesus, whom he calls the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. And again, you get a really deep, deep word concept here. Because in the English translations, you'll get a bunch of different words for pioneer. So sometimes you might have grown up hearing the author and perfecter of your faith, or the pioneer, or the originator, or the innovator. That second word is almost always the same word, though. The first word is somebody who gets something started. The second word is somebody who completes something. Now, this is, uh, I'll tell you what, this is, if you're looking for something that distinguishes the Christian faith from every other world religion, you can pack it into this one concept right here. The, Jesus is the pioneer and the perfecter of your faith. Because, see, a lot of people who are, are not Christians would look at, at your faith and, and say, they, they, don't, they don't see the difference between religions. They say they all seem to have a higher power, they all seem to talk about the afterlife, they all seem to have some kind of moral code that overlaps and whatever. But what actually, are they all really basically the same? Well, no. Well, why? Um, Muhammad is the, is the pioneer of Islam. And... Um, you know, uh, Siddhartha Gautama was the originator of Buddhism. And Joseph Smith is the author of Mormonism. He literally wrote the book on Mormonism. He's the author of Mormonism. And Charles Taze Russell and Confucius and, and uh, Sun Yun Moon. And those are authors of faith. 
Those are absolutely authors of faith. Those are people who tell you, you know what, this is what you should believe. And I can point you in the right direction. I can aim you in the right direction. I can command you what to believe. I can command you what to do. But guess what you have to do? you got to go out there and by your own strength, you have to finish this race. You have to finish your salvation. You have to finish your faith. That is not what Christianity says, not at all. The word that's used here for perfecter, it means finisher. It's actually the same basic root word that when Jesus is on the cross and he says, it is finished. See, that's who Jesus is. Every other world religion can maybe point you in some kind of direction and tell you how to finish your salvation. But in Christianity, look, there's no maybes. There are no maybes about your salvation for those who believe in Christ Jesus. And furthermore, I'll tell you, this is, this is something that just practically... This has come up no less, no less than six times for me in the last two weeks. And whenever something like that's happening, it's like, okay, well, maybe the Spirit is like prompting me to address this in a larger public setting because this is in the minds of people. And so I'm going to say it. And, and by the way, I also want to preface this by saying I don't view my job as, like when I preach on Saturdays, I don't think my job is particularly, you know, the first bullet point is to be like a Lutheran apologist of doctrine. No, I think my job is to look at a section of scripture and do the best I can to teach it faithfully to the group. And yet, you know what, I am a Lutheran pastor, and so it stands to reason every once in a while I might give a reason why specifically I'm a pastor in a Lutheran church. Like, that makes some sense, I think. Um, And so, what I would say to this, you know, As I was growing up, one of the things that was really attractive to me within Lutheran teaching was the absolute and utter insistence to take your eyes off of yourself and focus them on the completed work of Jesus Christ. I'm going to explain to you in a minute why that was so important to me, but I also want to say that even, you know, it's different. Christianity is different from other religions. But even within the Christian faith, sometimes we we can miss this point a little bit. And so let me just give you a couple examples. I know, um, I remember, uh, this is, by the way, it's different from individual to individual. So to some extent, you just have to go with what's on the books. But in Roman Catholicism, you know, is Jesus the author of your faith? Absolutely. Jesus is the one who died to take away the sins of the entire world. Jesus loves you. Jesus is the Son of God. Without question. But in Roman Catholicism, there's this thing called process justification. And essentially the way it works out, and again, this is just by the books anyways, or what's on the books, is, is the idea that through the infused grace that you get through the seven, sacrifice, seven sacraments, you are then empowered to carry out the good works that are required for your salvation. See, absolutely, is Jesus the author of your faith? No question. But to some extent, to some extent, at least a little bit, you have to finish off your faith. See, now, what's, what's really interesting to me is I, I talked to a lot of uh, um, Catholic friends in my last congregation that I was at, and this conversation came up all the time, and it was really interesting. I thought it was there, was, there was a nervousness about it sometimes, and yet, when I got to Milwaukee, the conversation shifted. I don't find myself having this conversation uh, with those of a Roman Catholic background, people who believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of the world, but I have had this conversation come up many, many times with people who are... Uh, my, my Pentecostal, non-denom, uh, modern evangelical friends who sometimes struggle with concerns about whether or not their faith is big enough or their faith is strong enough. I can go back to conversations that Aid and I had back years ago when we were dating and some of our like, evangelical friends would talk about this. One of the phrases that were often used was being safe but not quite being rapture ready. 
In other words, being saved, but like, am I fully, is there something yet to be done for me to experience salvation? And, um, you know, I, I, I get the concept, I get the concern, but the temptation is to become fixated on the magnitude of faith for salvation rather than on Jesus as the object of your salvation. Jesus as the perfecter of your salvation. See, uh, your good works don't perfect your salvation. And your big faith doesn't perfect your salvation either. Jesus alone perfects your salvation. And one of the reasons why that, from a Lutheran doctrine standpoint, resonated, maybe just admittedly for me, for me personally, as somebody who struggled with anxiety and depression all my life, and if you know anything about depression, you know that it can be a disease of inward focus again and again. And so that insistence, that indoctrinal insistence, James, take your eyes off yourself. Stop looking at yourself so much and start looking at Jesus, who is everything for you. That was a real source of liberation for me. See, because if, if Jesus is merely the author to your faith, if Jesus is only the author of your faith, you know what he becomes? He becomes an unrealistic, crushing example which perfectionists we know we will never, ever actually meet up to. On the other hand, if Jesus is the perfecter of your faith, to the degree that you realize that Jesus Christ at the cross not only took away all of your sins, but he created this perfect package of righteousness, his righteous life, and he gifted it into your account. And to the degree that you see him perfecting your faith, he will become your greatest relief and your source of gratitude and a blessing that you cannot take your eyes off of. Let me move to the final point here. Final point in verse 2 here, it says, He endured the cross for the joy that was before him, which is another mind-blowing concept because in Hebrews 11, uh, you hear about heroes of faith who were running, the, running their race and they were strengthened by God's promises and they were seeking the goodness of God and they were seeking the life that really is life. They were seeking the promised land. And then you get to chapter 12 and it's all the culmination in Jesus who, you know, according to his human state, of course he has perfect faith himself. He trusts his father's promises and he believes them, he submits to them and great glory comes from that. And yet look at what it says he does here. It says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Do you understand how crazy of a statement that is? For the joy that's in front of him, he endures the cross. For the joy right there, he goes through a cross. There, what that picture is, there's got to be something. There's such great joy there that he would go through uh, the, the, the cross of 10 billion hells in order to get to that joy. That is such a crazy concept because, wait a second, wasn't Jesus from eternity past, wasn't he already in heaven? In other words, didn't Jesus already have everything? Didn't he already have the glory of God? Didn't he already have the righteousness of God? Didn't he already have the love and affection of God? Didn't he already have the joy of God? So if Jesus is in heaven and he says, wait a second, something's missing, and he says, wait a second, it's on the other side of that cross, but I can't live without it and I got to go and get it, what's the joy on the other side of the cross? What is the thing that is worth enduring the hellishness of the cross in order to achieve that joy that he can't live without? And what it has to mean is at some point in time in eternity past, Jesus was looking around in heaven and saying, there is something missing here and I cannot live without it. And you know what's on the other side of the cross? You are. You're the only thing on the other side of that cross, which means that you are his greatest joy. You are absolutely everything to him and he would go to hell and back in order to rescue you. And you know what? Um... 
man, it's Valentine's Day weekend. If you are in a bad relationship or if you are in no relationship and you're wondering, you know, like just wishing, you know, when am I going to finally have a relationship where I can feel treasured and loved? You will not be shortchanged for all eternity. You're going to be married to this guy for all eternity as the church, okay? Um, if you're in this life and you're wondering, what am I doing here and why is life so hard and is this worth it and you're growing weary and you want to give up and you just look, look. Look at his travel plans for you. Don't you see his itinerary of paradise for you? Don't you see the lengths that he went to purchase your ticket? You can get through this. You will get through this. Keep your eyes fixed on him and just keep fighting. Okay? So let me just break this down to a couple application points here. Number one, I already touched on this a little bit, the agony and the fighting. Two weeks ago we talked about Exodus. I mentioned, you know what, the book of Exodus itself is something of a metaphor for the Christian journey and we're getting to the promised land but we're not there yet, which means we're still in the wilderness and we want the, we want the, the promised land right now but we're still in this wilderness throughout life. And you know what, that was two weeks ago. Last week I ended up visiting uh, Coach Meyer at home and we've been praying for Coach Meyer every week. Uh, his team's here tonight. It's great to have you guys. Um, Coach Meyer got to see him. We've been praying every week, and Coach Meyer has been in and out of the hospital constantly for the past two months. And doctors think they, the moment they think they might have a diagnosis as to exactly what he's going through, they don't know exactly what it is. And it's like, wh what is this? Why is this life right now? And actually, the day that I went and visited him, I was doing a devotion. In my own personal devotional reading, I was reading through Mark chapter 9, which if you don't know is the Mount of Transfiguration. And in that moment, you know, the Mount of Transfiguration account is the story where God like takes the fabric of a fallen world and he rips it apart and the light and the glory of God shines forth through it. And Jesus is standing there with Moses and Elijah. And remember that the inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John are standing on that mountain too. And, and Peter is the first one who speaks up and he goes, ooh, this is good stuff. We should, let's stay here. Let's set up some, let's build a house or set up some tents or something because this is good times right here. Lord, it is good for us to be here. And then it all like disappears and Jesus says, no, 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 let's, let's go down the mountain and let's go to the cross because there's still saving to do. Peter is the perfect representative of the human impulse. We always, always, always want the promised land, not the wilderness. We always want the mountaintop glory, not the cross. We always want heaven right now not to descend into the grave. Is that not the impulse of humanity? And yet, the writer of the Hebrews is saying, this life, what is it? It's a race? It's a fight? Is it a, a proceeding into agony? It seems really hard. I, there's a, past couple years, there's been a, like a social media movement that I can't quite wrap my brain around. I don't want to at all be like condescending about it or anything like that. But I just, from a Christian standpoint, because I see a lot of Christians participating in this, and I can't quite fully reconcile it with what I see in Scripture. But if you're familiar with like the best life now movement, like living your best life, hashtag best life, uh, winning at life or thriving at life. And you know what? I don't want to be unnecessarily negative and undersell the blessings that exist in this world because God has given us so many blessings and we should be so incredibly grateful and thankful and joyful for that. But after all, isn't this life a wilderness? And I don't know if you thrive in the wilderness. I think a better word for what you do in the wilderness is you survive. And a life as a believer, assuming that you're doing it right, like i.e. picking up your cross and following Christ, it's hard work. 
And, you know, I've run into numerous articles recently that have been talking about this exact same comp uh, concept of the lack of coping techniques that exist in modern humanity, in modern people. And the way the argument works is like this. If you go back a century ago, uh, in the height of the modernist era, what you would have had is a bunch of people who are saying technological advances, ensuing technological progress is eventually going to be able to get us into some kind of utopian society. So through technology progress, we are going to be able to get rid of all the dangers of life. And with ensuing technology, we can get rid of the danger of uh, accidents in automobiles. And with more technology, we can get rid of various diseases. And with more technology, we can get rid of crime. And with more technology, we can get rid of war, and so on and so forth. And the big idea, then, is if we can just have more technology, eventually in the modernist era, we're going to create a world without danger. And you know what? To a large extent, that was greatly true. Like, by and large, in most places, in most metrics, crime rates are generally down and health problems are generally down compared to what they used to be. And unemployment is generally down from what it used to be. And yet, you know where the conversation has shifted? Fascinatingly, there's an article in the New York Times about this literally every year. The idea that fear and anxiety levels are higher than they have ever been despite the fact that circumstances are better than they have ever been. Now, how on earth is that possible? And the problem seems to be that no matter how much you mitigate the suffering of life, every life is like still ending in death. In other words, external circumstances improve, but the internal needle on wellness is not moving at all and, in fact, might be moving in the opposite direction. And therefore, what's interesting is in the public dialogue, there's a number of key like cultural thinkers who are talking about this now. In the public dialogue, the conversation has shifted instead from improving circumstances to the need to develop more character, the need to develop more courage, the need to develop resources to face the inevitable agonies that are going to come our way in life. You know what that is? The writer to the Hebrews is talking about this 2,000 years ago when he was encouraging us to run our races. Impact requires courage and faithfulness requires courage and life requires courage and courage is not the absence of fear but the presence of something or someone greater that allows you to overcome your fears. Your eyes have to be fixed on something that is greater than whatever your greatest fear is if you're going to get beyond your fear. See? Um, perfection without pressure. The book of Hebrews is a book that is, uh, God is telling Jewish converts to Christianity that life culminates in Jesus who marched through hell in order for our salvation. What that means is no matter what happens, no matter what happens in this lifetime, 60, 70, 80 years, no matter what happens, there is a room in paradise made up and waiting for you. Therefore, you have nothing to lose. You are playing life essentially with house money, so you better go and live by faith courageously. You better go and live without fear of mistakes. This is not an encouragement to go and live recklessly, but it absolutely is a command to live by faith and not by fear so that the performance anxiety is off and the pressure is off because the Christian's identity and the Christian's future is not wrapped up in what you do. It's not wrapped up in your performance. Your, your, your identity and your future are entirely wrapped up in Christ's already perfected work. And if you are playing life without fear, you know what that does? It gives you courage to actually go out onto the battlefield and slay the giants that are standing there in front of you. Remember the heroes of faith before us? Where do you think David got the... He wasn't because he had a great skill set. How do you think he got the courage to go out on the battlefield? 
By the way, every single person in this room right now has a giant that is standing out on a field right now that you probably should be walking out towards and fighting. And you're never going to get the courage to do that unless your eyes are fixed not on that giant but on the person who is greater than that giant. If you're playing without fear, you can call pharaohs and kings to repentance. If you're playing without fear, you can build an ark when everybody's laughing at you. If you're playing without fear, you can leave your family and your culture to follow wherever God tells you to go. You can't lose because he has already completed your necessary work for you. So fix your eyes on Jesus who has already taken your big cross and you will be able to handle any smaller crosses that come your way in life. Damn. Last thought. Um, it's like Peter on the lake, joy and generosity. Peter on the lake, you remember the story, right? He walks on water. When he looks at the, the, the water and when he feels the wind and when he looks at himself, he starts to sink. But when he looks at Jesus, he can practically like walk on water. And doing that is very joyful. And doing that, I have to imagine, was very exhilarating. Can you imagine if Peter had structured his entire life so that he would always only try to walk on dry land? You know, like, oh man, water's chaotic and I better avoid the water and I better never go towards water and insulate myself from water because it's possibly dangerous out there. And he only if he only tries to ever live on dry land, he's never actually going to walk on water. See? And he would miss out on that joy. And this is where the application of generosity clearly kicks in. See, let me give you a different illustration. When you go to the gym, if you go to the gym, when you go to the gym, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt, when we go to the gym, if you, if you take a barbell and you lift it, and you lift it repeatedly again and again and again in bicep curls, how does your arm feel? Weaker. You lift and lift and lift and pump the weight and your arm feels like it's dying and it feels like it's going to fall out and it feels like it's getting weaker. Now you objectively know when you do that what's happening to your arm. In the long run, it's getting stronger. In the this is why you can never completely trust your feelings because in the moment you absolutely 100% feel and in some real sense you are being weaker but you're actually getting stronger. Now what's actually happening? I don't completely understand this but it's, it's something like as you expose your muscle fibers to this distress they experience this like microscopic damage and that damage what it does those injured cells produce these inflammatory like molecules called cytokines and those cytokines activate your immune system to repair the injury and the greater damage to the muscle tissue the more repairing gets done and the resulting cycle of damage and repair makes your muscles bigger and bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger and stronger and my wife's looking at me like if you know this much about muscle building why why? Why? But that's how muscles get built, apparently. I learned that not from building muscles, I learned that from YouTube. Um, the resulting cycle of damage and repair makes muscles bigger and stronger. And here's the point, what feels like it's making you weaker is actually making you stronger. A basic principle in the way God designed human beings. What does this have to do with generosity? When you give away your wealth, do you feel financially weaker or stronger? Objectively, when you give away wealth, well, I must be weaker. I'm in a weaker financial position. I'm more financially threatened. I'm more financially vulnerable. But don't you see, that's the exercise. It's not just that you might get stronger. It's that you will get stronger because that's the way that muscles work. And the same God who programmed the human body, the same God who commands you to fight the good fight and run the races, the same God who gave you any sorts of commands about generosity. And remember, it is not about what he wants from you. That's 
The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He's got all of it. He doesn't need anything from you. This is all about the power and the strength and the courage and the gratitude and the joy that he wants for you. Most Americans are simply trying to maximize pleasure, comfort, and happiness right now. That is not going to make you a hero. That is not going to get, make you joyful in the long run. And that is not going to make you courageous to face the inevitable wilderness and trials that you experience in life. Fix your eyes on Jesus who pioneered and perfected your faith. Don't, don't just hold on to his promises. Sometimes we talk that way. And I get it and I say that and I talk that way too. Don't don't just hold his promises. Flex his promises. Act on his promises. And there will be no storm that can knock you over. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the reason many of us aren't more grateful and we aren't more generous is because our eyes just aren't focused quite right. The problem is not the storms around us. The problem is not the wilderness. The problem is not the finances or the health or the anything like that. The problem is, is, is that we focus on us and we focus on the circumstances when we should be focusing on you. When we focus on you, there's a power that comes down and a power that comes through and a glory that shines forth to your name. Help us to live that out. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the generosity that you've shown to us, giving us even your own life. Help us to pour our lives out to the glory of your name as well. Amen.